So today, as I said before, we're going to talk about the exercising of authority in the church. Last week, we looked at a couple of offices in the early church. There was the office of overseer and deacons, and it talked about the requirements that you should look for in a person before appointing them or having them serve in particular roles. And so now we're looking at how these people, particularly the overseers, should exercise authority in the church. And I've got to say, authority... And church is a pretty sticky issue. Uh, it, it's at least uh, a bit of a funny one culturally for a lot of Australians. Uh, Australians, uh, you know, the masters of the tall poppy syndrome who like to tear people down. Uh, we, we speak to and of our politicians in ways that people in other countries wouldn't dream of. Uh, and there's some good in that uh, and there's some not so good in that. Uh, but we do have culturally an odd relationship uh, with authority. Uh, it's... It's reasonably unique uh, to us. Uh, but also, it's a tricky issue because, unfortunately, the church, like, uh, like any other collection of people, uh, has bad eggs in it. Uh, and some have abused power in order to abuse people. And so maybe you get uh, this kind of a picture of authority, someone who is finger-pointing in your face, talking down to you, uh, and, and standing on uh, some sort of right that they have uh, to, to treat you that way. And look, it's easy enough, isn't it, to imagine uh, an over-the-top, belligerent man causing pain and then hiding behind the protections of his position. Uh, it might look something like this or it might be uh, a more gentle sort of uh, or a, a subtle coercion uh, where someone uses the power imbalance that comes from their position uh, to sway impressionable people into giving them things like money or sex, both things that have happened in the church. And look, maybe you don't need to use your imagination for this stuff. Maybe you've seen it. I'm very fortunate. I'm, I'm yet to be in a church where uh, I've seen this, uh, this kind of poison, but I know it exists. I know it's, there's a lot of it. Uh, the fact that this happens kind of does make this an issue for all of us, by the way. Uh, because even if you don't or haven't fallen prey to this kind of thing yourself, it's important to, uh, for the sake of others that we're all on guard against it. Uh, the matter of church authority also uh, poses problems for unbelievers, particularly the abuse of church authority. Uh, because there are people who use the fact of abuse in the church as a reason to discard all of Christ. Uh, that goes for current abuses and scandals, the kinds of things uh, that hit the headlines, uh, but also historic ones, things uh, that people like to uh, pull out and refer back to, like uh, the Spanish Inquisition or the old witch trials. For many unbelievers, this is all proof that Christianity is either no better than the alternatives or possibly, possibly even Christianity is a, an evil corrupting influence that should be avoided at all costs. But one of the other things that makes uh, this uh, leaves this uh, issue of authority in the church in this sticky, tricky place uh, is that Scripture as well uh, seems to, at some level, undermine the use of uh, at least an overbearing brand of authority. And so I'm just going to throw you a few verses uh, which, uh, which we need to have in mind uh, whenever we're talking this stuff through. Uh, these are Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Don't lord, but serve. You could read this as uh, the abolition of any kind of authority structure, if you read it on its own. Uh, in 1 Timothy, the, the letter that we're reading, and, and I said today, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, I'm writing to you how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Uh, and even just that picture of family, us being a family, is enough uh, for some people to say, well, uh, you know, this is this, is this uh, organic, uh, relational sort of thing with, with no place for positions uh, and, uh, and appointments. There's a couple of other ones here. These two are, are similar in theme. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. All children. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If we, as if we are all children of God. Uh, it, it, sorry, if we are all children of God, we are all brothers and sisters. There's no senior or junior or greater or lesser. We're, we're all one. We're all equal. And then in Ephesians, it says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Well, how would one with authority fall into this sort of overlapping matrix uh, of everyone submitting to everyone else uh, without either someone rising to the top and then therefore not submitting? Or how does it work? Uh, There is also the context of the letter that we're in. In 1 uh, Timothy, Uh, from Paul to Timothy. Paul is advising Timothy how to manage and steer the church while others have weaseled and muscled their way into positions of influence and these people are causing strife. There's arguments, there's jealousy, there's all kinds of bitterness and disputes. They're causing strife. This is exactly the kind of abuse of power that I've been describing and that we should be on our guard against. And so, but there is a question then that arises from the context of the letter that we're looking at. Well, how do you take down powerful people uh, when they're abusing their power uh, and they're protected by their power? And I reckon that question actually gives us a pretty powerful starting point to unsticking the sticky issue of church authority. Church authority, when it's done right, has more jurisdiction over those with authority the heaviest hand of authority shouldn't be mainly used against uh, the average churchgoer or member but against those with authority who are abusing it that's certainly reflected and i hope i can show you this certainly reflected in the way jesus spoke to people Uh, he was gentle and gracious and kind but to those who abused their authority and who used their authority to make life harder for others he was pretty firm to understate it what we see in the bible and really helpful here in 1 timothy chapter 4 is that the normal way to exercise authority in the church so not the heavy-handed way which is an extraordinary thing that uh, there are provisions for, but the normal, ordinary, daily way to exercise authority in the church is to simply read and preach the word. It's to simply put in front of God's people on a regular basis his word so that he may speak for himself to his people. I'm going to 
So, the practice uh, and exercise of authority in the church according to God's own word should go something like this. Uh, This is using mainly 1 Timothy. There's offices, there's the preaching of the word, setting an example, and then there is rebuke and there is excommunication. And I would say these are those last two are are the heavier hands of authority. So I'm going to talk first about the offices. It's interesting when you read the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, when Jesus bursts onto the scene initially, people are calling him Rabbi. He already has an official title within, well, it was the Jewish faith uh, that he was raised in. Uh, He is also recognised, Rabbi, by the way, means teacher. He was recognised as a man with authority within the family of God. Uh, There is a place, I will suggest, for offices, for appointments, uh, for specific roles with titles and with genuine authority in the church. Uh, For example, uh, and we looked at this just last week in chapter 3, it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, uh, it's a position in the church, uh, then uh, he desires a noble task. I showed last week how the office of overseer and what we refer to as elders uh, were used interchangeably in that early church period. Now the word elder, uh, which is the word that we tend to prefer in the Presbyterian church, uh, the word elder suggests something organic, doesn't it? Because, you know, it's linked to age. Uh, The word elder suggests an organic kind of recognition process rather than simply an office. Uh, You recognise, for example, the older people as having runs on the board uh, in terms of wisdom and life experience. And any church or other organisation, for that matter, will have organically and naturally those statesman-type men and women who command respect naturally through their presence uh, and because of their longevity and because of their faithfulness over a long period of time, their reputation. And when we come to appointing people into offices and positions, we need to be uh, looking for those things first when we appoint elders. But the Bible doesn't paint a picture of people simply ageing up through the ranks. There is the genuine appointment of people to certain roles. It's very, very well documented in the Bible. Uh, In chapter 3, it outlines a whole selection criteria uh, that on balance will include some younger men, and exclude some older men. Uh, There will be a range of ages represented. Timothy himself is a good example, and maybe you notice verse uh, 12. Paul says to Timothy in verse 12, not to let anyone despise him because of his youth. We learn from that this much at least. Timothy's a pretty young man. And so even a young man uh, can have position and authority Uh, Verse 14 talks about a time when a council of elders laid their hands on Timothy, which points to the time of his uh, his appointment or his commissioning into his role in the church. This is a thing that happened then. It's a thing that churches still practice today. In chapter 5, verse 22, Paul says that we shouldn't be hasty in the laying on of hands because if you appoint the wrong person by the laying on of your hands you yourself become partly responsible for their errors. That's partly why I think uh, we're told to do this with the laying on of hands. Uh, yes, you're touching them as a, as a sign of blessing and solidarity. We support you. 
but you're linking yourself to them and their faults as well. So don't be hasty in it, but do do it. Do appoint people into roles and offices. Uh, The appointment of people to recognise roles is also uh, a great positive step uh, in the environment that Timothy himself finds himself in, where, where leadership roles are filled by troublemakers. If you have uh, a dish full of dirty water, you can tip out the dirty water and refill it uh, with clean stuff. That would be like uh, excommunication, which is the last thing on there. You tip it out, you cast out the bad, and you start all over. But that's a pretty radical step. And it's not always possible, and it's, and it's not always swift. But you can make a dish of dirty water less dirty by simply tipping more clean water into it, into the dirty bowl. That will dilute the filth that's in the bowl. Now, it's not a perfect fresh start, but it's a start. And it's a gentler start than running, than running through the house with a whip uh, and, and cleaning everything out. And so by appointing quality people into positions, even where there might be poor quality people in those positions, uh, you start to dilute the bad uh, with some good. And I think actually like what you find mostly in this chapter is really positive, proactive steps that can be initiated today if things go bad. The book of Titus, uh, the book of Titus, which is a couple of pages over from Timothy, it's a very similar letter uh, to what we find in Timothy. It's just shorter. Uh, I preached on it last year, actually. Uh, both are written by Paul to young men in charge of troubled churches, and Paul's first command to Titus, right up front in chapter one of Titus, is, "I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into an order and appoint elders in every town." So not just discover that there's already influential people in the mix, uh, but formally appoint and recognise them. But of course, make sure that they are good. Preaching the word. Uh, Remember I said Jesus, uh, his title when he first came on the scene uh, in his public ministry was rabbi or teacher. Uh, Now that was uh, a descriptive title, uh, but it was certainly what he did. Uh, and, it was, and he made sacri- he sacrificed doing other things so that he could maintain his teaching role. Uh, it was why people gathered to him. It was one of the reasons. There was healing as well. But one of the reasons was just to hear him teach. And people would sit at his feet all day to hear him, skipping meals. Now, there's a basic structure to the passage that uh, we read today. Uh, there's a reason I included uh, the end of chapter 3 as well. In the last verses of chapter 3, Paul draws attention to the blazing centre of our faith. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And it's all about him, Jesus. His coming in the flesh. His gathering of people who are saved and his ultimate majesty. You might remember the words that says, He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. It's not complete, uh, but it does the job of drawing us to him, to Jesus, the central truths that we need to keep coming back to. And then in chapter 4, in the first few verses, Paul lifts the lid on the reality of teachers and leaders who have abandoned the centre of the faith, who is Jesus, 
and they've started fiddling around the edges in controversies and toying with technicalities. And specifically, for some reason, they've begun arguing that people should avoid marriage and they should steer away from all kinds of food for the sake of some version of purity. And this has become complicated uh, and burdensome and not true, not correct. And so from there, Paul springs into saying again and again throughout chapter 4 in a variety of ways, essentially this, preach the word. Preach the word. He says in verse 6, and and he says this uh, reasonably gently, I would say as well, but this is what you must do. Preach the word. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ. Put the truth out there. Just put it there. Lay it there. Uh, now, this one's more formal, uh, more firm. Command, in verse 11, command and teach these things. But wh- what commands is he giving? He's giving commands from Scripture. Verse 13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Uh, in verse 14, it's not up there, but it says, uh, do not neglect the gift that you have. And his gift uh, is his role of teacher. Now, I I love this, that it preach the word. I love that it is such a positive, productive step. It's a command for all seasons. Now, the word is our diet at all times. What do we do when uh, when you're a person uh, who's lost their way and you need some wisdom? You look to God's word. What do you do when you need comfort in grief? Remember God's promises in his word. What should a young church leader by the name of Timothy do when the church is rocked by controversy? Preach the word. He's not told, first and foremost, to publicly refute them or to name and shame them or to call for help from the denomination or to excommunicate them. Although, in fact, all of those things are possible and can be done and, depending on uh, the stakes, sometimes should be done. But alongside all of those things, that young church leader should continue to open and read and teach God's word from beginning to end. It's a bit like that dirty water bowl again, to shift the image to another place. It's not about trying to empty the dirty bowl by refuting and confronting and arguing. That would be to concentrate on the filth and say, oh, well, this bit's wrong and that bit's wrong and this is wrong because of this. And you get tangled up into the web these false teachers have actually created it's not about trying to empty the dirty bowl it's by it's diluting it just pouring over it a flood of truth and scripture overwhelm the rot with metronomic sound bible teaching and good godly sense we don't need to be reactive we be proactive we teach a steady diet of god's word now it is true uh, that there are many people in churches out there who for their own reasons uh, and sometimes blatantly and sometimes subtly uh, twist and teach uh, the truth about god to to teach what is false 
Uh, there is a difference, by the way, between people who are simply mistaken, since none of us are right about everything all the time, uh, and those who are in grave error and who are actually leading people astray, people who uh, the Bible would talk uh, refer to as uh, false teachers or uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. The reality of corrupt false teachers in the world is confirmed by 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, where Paul says in verse 1, The Spirit expressly says that there will be deceitful spirits and teachings of demons and insincere liars. So we should be on our guard for the rot. But I wonder if you've come across uh, this sort of phenomenon before. Because of all this, I'm, I'm aware of uh, people whose whole ministry uh, and they have YouTube channels in particular devoted to this, uh, calling out false teaching. Uh, and that ministry, I would say, serves a purpose because it's true, there are false teachers in the world. But that ministry, when it becomes a sole focus, very easily tips over, in my opinion, into becoming unproductive and nitpicky and fault-finding, turns into witch hunts without a fair trial a lot of the time. Not even taking people uh, at face value or giving people a fair hearing, but uh, take, ripping words out of context so you can prove yourself to be right and others to be wrong. Now, some people who do that walk the line more skillfully, more skillfully than others. But let me say this to you. I don't, I don't think it's a healthy diet for the average Christian to feed themselves on. Now, I don't know if this is you, but I've seen it around. I've seen uh, this sort of thing lead to people finding a false teacher under every single rock uh, to the extent that it can actually puff a person up with pride. Because you can, if you spend all your time focusing on other people's faults and where they might step wrong, then it's a really convenient position to take because you can convince yourself again and again and again how right you are. And on occasion, I've seen those same people absolutely shipwreck their own life through immorality. So make sure your diet is positive and productive. Drink deeply from the cleansing waters of God's word. Let him feed you. Look to him, not look to find fault in others. Although, of course, we need to be discerning. Setting an example... Again, let's remember, Jesus is the master of setting an example. He asks people to follow him where he walks, where he leads. Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 12, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. I remember as a teenager uh, writing that verse on a bit of paper and sticking it near my bed. Uh, I particularly love the first half of it, as you can imagine. Let no one despise you for your youth. That feels pretty empowering. But it's also really demanding, isn't it, when you read the whole verse, whether you're young or old. In fact, you get the impression that uh, this task of setting an example, it's not actually linked to age at all. He's saying, you know, setting an example is what you must do. People might expect very little from you when, because you're young, but your job is to set an example, just as it would be if you were old. This demand to set an example is, is linked to everyone 
really. To you, it, this is your responsibility as a brother or sister in Christ to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But it is a weightier responsibility laid on the shoulders uh, of church leaders uh, and Timothy in this context because of his office, because he is some kind of overseer in the church. So people will look to him, and they should. And so he needs to be careful. Verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. I should have written that one beside my bed when I was a teenager as well. That's a relief, isn't it? That actually uh, we're allowed to watch people grow. And people are allowed to grow in front of your eyes. And leaders are allowed to be a bit rough around the edges and to uh, mature with time. But we should be watching uh, their progress. We should be watching them for genuine growth and maturity. And they need to watch themselves. Church leaders must watch themselves. Verse 16, Paul's very careful instruction to Timothy at the bottom of the page up there. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. There's a link there, uh, an obvious link between the teaching, which was point two, teaching the word, uh, and about Timothy's own life. If there's a disconnect between what you're teaching and what you're living, well, that undermines everything. But it is really important, this is a, this is a, very strict command on Timothy that as you wield the sword of the word of God, turn that sword first on yourself before you start waving it in the face of other people. There's plenty of stories and plenty of examples of people who have used scripture passages or references or interpretations or whatever to slug other people over the head and keep them in their place, twisting God's word uh, to abuse others and serve themselves. But the leader in the church is commanded to turn the word on themselves first. Look carefully at yourself as you look carefully at the word. Do everything in your power to make the two align. And as you teach, do so humbly. And I said, and I'm not actually going to spend as much time on these, but I said these last two, rebuke and excommunication, are sort of the, they're the heavier handed tools but remember the bulk of it is is very proactive these are the reactive sort of things but the the bulk of it is put good people in positions of authority teach the word set an example that is where the bulk of exercising authority in the church really lies and yet it does say to rebuke well perhaps you noticed actually in chapter 5 verse 1 which we did read at the end of our passage today, it says, uh, it's not up there, but it's in your Bible, it says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, and younger men as brothers, and older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. It says, do not rebuke an older man. Well, that's pretty interesting in light of chapter 5, verse 20, uh, which is up here. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And if you read a couple of verses before that in the Bible that you've got open on your lap, you'll see that he's talking about elders. The those in there are elders in the church. Those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them. And in Timothy's case, those elders are probably older than him, but he's been commanded uh, to rebuke them. So I think that chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, 
do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, is, is saying to Timothy something uh, like, uh, rebuke as a last resort, but encouragement comes first. And of course, pay due respect to genuine organic relationship dynamics as well. This heavier hand stuff is stuff that uh, you only resort to if you must. But do, rem- do recognise as well, I, I said this at the start, that, uh, that where it is talking about rebuking and doing so publicly, this heavier-handed exercising of authority is being turned actually on those with authority, the elders in the church. This is not giving elders in the church a licence to turn the club onto everyone sitting out there. It is actually for uh, the leaders in the church to keep each other accountable and again, as I said at the start, that you know, this was Jesus' model. It was the people who were puffed up with pride and who were making life difficult for others uh, that Jesus came down by far the hardest on. He was scathing. And then excommunication. Now, this isn't in chapter 4, uh, but it is in 1 Timothy and it, and it appears in other places. And look, I'm using the word excommunication because it's... It's a good enough word to use, and uh, but it probably makes us all feel a bit uncomfortable, like we're getting maybe a bit too Catholic or something like that. I don't know. Um, but uh, it's a word that describes uh, the last tool uh, in the belt, in the exercise of authority, and that is getting rid of people from the fellowship. But again, this too is to be used primarily against uh, those who are in leadership, who need to be get rid of. Got, gotten rid of. Uh, so back in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, uh, Paul doesn't teach this as such as much as just uh, describe something that's happened. He talks about uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. These are, by name, a couple of the teachers who have been causing trouble in the church. Now, when he says, that, that's funny language, isn't it? Handed over to Satan. Now, he's not talking about some ritual or a cursing ceremony uh, where he's lit a candle and snuffed it out or, you know, snipped a lock of hair and done something weird, handing them over to Satan. This is about carefully and thoroughly removing gangrenous tissue from the body. It is about making it plain and public to those men at the church that these men are not to be listened to. It's, it's removal and it's public. It's probably not physical or forceful. Despite the full-on language of being handed over to Satan, the goal of this is actually always restorative. Notice this, it says uh, that they would be handed over to Satan so that they may learn. Uh, So that they would, uh, left on their own, to their own devices, discover, uh, have, have some space and time to discover Uh, the truth and to repent and return is actually the goal now when it comes to that these things are always difficult a cutting of the flesh like this is bound to cause pain and division when someone is sent off they almost always take others with them Uh, uh, this is you know church split kind of stuff and the personal people who are successful in doing the dirty work of removing uh, the the false teachers well, sometimes they can be tainted then by the suspicion of others. You know, it, it's, it's thankless work, dirty work. 
but it's work that sometimes must be done and takes great courage, uh, but also uh, great wisdom uh, and prayerfulness. Notice too, though, that this is um, two things that this isn't. This isn't a book burning. You know, this isn't, um, you know, oh, we, we eliminate every trace of something so that people may not find it uh, and learn from it. This is a public open event. Uh, you can, you know, they're named. We know who they are. Or at least certainly the, the people uh, who uh, Paul was writing to in those days, that they knew exactly who they were. This was public stuff. Notice also this isn't an execution. It's not a burning at the stake of a heretic. Those, that, those things are totalitarian and actually, in the end, counterproductive. They produce martyrs. Even excommunication, like I say, to a point, can produce a kind of martyrdom. But all of this to say, if this is to happen, if we have to come to last resorts at some time, and, and I hope it's not in this church, but I expect most of you will belong to a different church at some point uh, in the future. Uh, if this is ever to happen... Uh, then it needs to be done carefully, uh, usually slowly, uh, pursuing justice. Uh, But ultimately, it does need to be done honestly and publicly. But remember, this is mainly about rebuking and correcting and even casting out teachers who have gone astray. And remember in all of this, just as we come to the end again, that it is Christ who exercises final authority over us. Uh, He is the one who uh, holds the office uh, of, uh, as I talked about last week, he he is referred to in Scripture as both overseer and deacon, uh, terms uh, that are used in chapter 3. But better yet, he is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He holds and maintains actual, absolute authority. He cleanses his church by his word. He is the stream of living waters that we are to drink from. And he leads his church by example. And that example, most powerfully, was one of sacrifice. Uh, Loving others by forgetting yourself. Uh, And that's got to apply... uh, certainly to leaders, uh, but absolutely to every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, as we grow as a church that uh, seeks to reflect uh, the teaching of your word and tries to obey uh, what, how you say we ought to behave, uh, we pray that you'll help us to put these things into practice well. Uh, We pray that um, you will raise up uh, workers uh, and and elders uh, to lead and to teach uh, through the sharing and reading of your word uh, and by example. And we pray uh, for the leaders in your church uh, that you will help us to to grow so that we may demonstrate uh, progress. We pray uh, that we will lead an example of godliness and all purity. We pray that you will help us uh, to be uh, 
dutiful and faithful in applying the word first to ourselves as we keep close watch on ourselves and the teaching. Father, we pray that you'll help us uh, as a church family to uh, respect and recognise authority that is given. Help us to, uh, each of us, uh, take it to heart uh, that we uh, should honour and obey those who lead us, uh, but certainly, mostly, that we must pray for them uh, so that they can lead us well. And Father, we pray uh, that you will forgive us for our sins uh, and we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who is uh, the true overseer of our faith, uh, the one who serves uh, and the one who leads. Amen.